Happy Halloween, everybody. Yes, it's that time of year again, and the At The Flicks team of Graham, Jeff and Neil have been invited to Darren's Halloween Bash. Now, we're all suitably suited and booted for this occasion, and it's our first time of being at Darren's mansion. We all got our costumes on. Neil, take that mask off. Oh, sorry. Um, at the bash, there'll be a choice between movies, TV shows, and music, all hand-picked by Mr. Halloween, Darren himself. Welcome to my abode, everybody. Hey, thank you, Darren. So just to explain my rationale of what makes a great Halloween movie. To me, Halloween isn't just about horror. It's about being spooky. It's about being creepy. It's about scares. But most of all, it's actually about being fun. That's what I've gone for is uh, films that you can actually watch and just have a bit of a party with and have fun. So it's not the uh, the best of horror. So, for example, films like The Exorcist or The Omen or The Babadook, even though they're amongst the greatest horror films of all time, I've not chosen films like those because they're, frankly, downers. They're really great movies, but they're not ones that you can watch and uh, have a good time with and have a lot of fun with. I've gone for the party ones, the ones which are fun, that you can have a bit of a laugh with. Because to me, that is what Halloween is. It's not generally horror it's about having a really fun time. Plenty of pumpkins, plenty of them um, scares, but that's what I've gone for. Excellent. So the way this is designed then, you've got 10 rooms that each one of these films is playing behind the door. Let's see if you can convince Neil and Graham to go behind that door to mm. watch the film that's in it. So what's behind the door then? Door number one, and I've gone for, to me, one of the big party movies of all time. So it's also got a very uh, horror theme, and it's the Rocky Horror Picture Show. 1975, directed by Richard Sharman. This is the perfect party movie. Just being into this movie for the songs alone is absolutely awesome. I don't think that there is a single song in this film which is a dud. They're all great. I mean, you've got, obviously, the time warp. The opener science fiction is just this absolutely wonderful homage to the classic silver screen monster movies and horror films and sci-fi. You've got the uh, Frankenfurter's uh, song at the end, uh, I'm Going Home. You've got the Meatloaf track. It's just a really, really fun movie. But the thing about it as well is it is also very dark. And very disturbing in places. I actually think that Frankenfurter is possibly one of the most underrated villains in a film ever. Because even with his um, stockings and suspenders and everything and his, and his basque, he is an absolutely evil villain. But in this film, he does so many horrendous things. He molests two people. He builds a creature that has the mental capacity of a child and seduces him. He murders somebody and then feeds the body to the guy's uncle and the rest of the cast. It's an absolutely horrendous villain. And the, one of the things as well in, in this film, if you watch the scene where he kills Meatloaf, it's absolutely terrifying. He kills him with a, a pickaxe. And the bit where he's stalking him into the fridge, the look on his face, it's absolutely terrifying. 
to me, this is a perfect, fun horror movie. Quite dark, but it's absolutely wonderful music. And it's also completely insane. Coming from a working class background, I saw this as a teenager. And it was quite the eye-opener seeing all these sort of guys walking around in suspenders and all the, um, all the trans dressing and all things like that. But it's wild. And I, I think that this is an absolutely amazing party movie. Thank you, Darren. And now I understand Neil's choice of costume. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> very funny. Uh, yeah. So I take it both of you have seen this many times then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I saw the stage show. Yeah. yeah. And came to Cheltenham. Yeah. And I, I had a, a friend who um, whose brother went to the stage show on his motorbike in all the gear <laughs> and had an accident. And ended up in A and E, and they had to cut his leathers off him. And of course, it all came out, and they went, "Oh, ah, right. (laughs) (laughs) What do we do here?" (laughs) So, as we approach film, the first film, I'd be the only one and have a problem going beyond the door. I hate this film. (laughs) Really, Uh, I hate it. The music's okay, the songs are good. It just doesn't gel with me. It's interesting, Darren's take on Frankenfurter's one of the ultimate villains, but it just does not work for me. Clearly too straight-laced for it, that's all I can say. <laughs> clearly are, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Well, you've won the others over, Darren, with film number one. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I like about the pickaxe scene is that he kills him uh, to a musical beat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's just yeah. a what? Phantom of the Paradise came out the same time, much better. It's probably behind one of the other doors, hopefully. Uh, behind door number two, um, probably a little bit of a, um, a surprise, this one. 2008's Cloverfield. Uh, directed by uh, Matt Reeves. So um, I wanted to stick a, a monster movie in there. Halloween is not just about your traditional horror, it's about sort of a little bit of sci-fi as well and to me this is a great monster movie and one of the things that I sort of like about it is in case you've not seen it already it's about a giant creature that attacks New York one night it's all caught up in a camcorder it follows a group of trying to go rescue one of their friends who's got stranded to escape from from Manhattan before it's completely destroyed you get the scale of a monster because everything follows the actual people themselves who are trying to escape. A lot of monster movies, the, the monster that you're following, this one it's not. You, you see the people as they're sort of like, you know, avoiding the explosions, the buildings toppling over. There's a really tense scene where they try to escape through the uh, New York subway and they get attacked by these uh, weird little spider creatures. And what's great about it as well is they're just regular people. There's no real explanation as to what's going on you are with them when they see the explosions in the distance and trying to find out what's going on and then you get the little glimpses of the monster because you're following them you're not getting like the perspective of the military or scientists you're not finding out what's going on they're just wanting to escape and that sort of uncertainty i think that what makes it so effective let's face it as well 2008 it's only it's less than 10 years after 9-11 so that is very very influenced you know, they see a lot of footage of ambulances and crews and everything from the camcorder's perspective, which you saw a lot of around 9-11. Some people were offended by that. I personally thought it worked really, really well. And I just think this is, this is a, a great movie. It was also one of the first films 
to actually make the use of the internet to promote a movie. In the uh, months uh, up to it being released, the, the film was kept in a lot of secrecy. This is going to really date us. There was a lot of um, MySpace accounts created of the characters to give a little bit of a backstory to explain what sort of was going on. And there was like there was almost a hunt on the internet to find clues as to as to what was going on. There's um, there's one character that you see asleep at the uh, to a party at the start, and she actually has a whole little short movie about her hidden on the internet that you that you can find. I rewatched this, and I think it's a great film even today. I think uh, the found footage film genre is. It's kind of been overdone, but I think this one works really well because you've got really nice characters and because there's some really scary moments in there. Apart from the giant monster, there's the little spider creatures. And there is actually a whole wealth of um, backstory in there hidden away on Blu-rays and stuff. I actually do think that there was a lot of potential to make more films on this and explore further that was never really realised. This film alone, I, I think it's a it's absolute cracker. So what do you think of the other attempts to expand the Cloverfield, uh, and I hate to say this word, but I will, universe? Um, <laughs> do you think they work or they don't? Not really. There was rumours that there was going to be another Cloverfield movie because there's a, there's a bit on the bridge where you can actually see somebody else with a video camera. And there was rumours that you were going to see more films from other people's perspectives of the film, which I think had a lot of potential. The other Cloverfield movies if you can even call them that i think just took films and then just put the cloverfield label on them the cloverfield lane one I actually like as a film you know i think it's a good film i think it when at the end when it comes into the sci-fi bit i think that spoils the premise of it somewhat the cloverfield paradox i mean that was just a film that they bought and then just shot a load of cloverfield things into it i think that was a bad film all around and i think that kind of cheapened the whole cloverfield mythos it is very effective. I, I think so. That spider sequence that you talk about certainly worked for me. Oh, yeah. So, Graham and Neil, would you enter this room to watch this Yeah, film? yeah, I've seen this before. I actually saw this in the States and uh, really enjoyed it there. People were whooping and shouting, and it's quite quite a different atmosphere. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I hear about someone sitting close to the screen and vomiting. <laughs> Just... <laughs> Thanks for that, Jeff. Yeah. Well, no, it, it is so disorientating the way they've done it. You get too close, it can can really stuff you up. What about you, Neil? I haven't seen it. No, I don't know why. Never really got round to it. I might see that one then. Oh, okay. Mm. So you've, got, you, you've got somebody to go into the room who hasn't seen it. Well done, Darren. <laughs> what we got? What's behind the next door? Number three, this, this is a little way out one. This is a, um, a 70s movie. And this was kind of one that a lot of people haven't seen. I, I sort of saw it at a birthday party when I was 12. Kill's party was he um, he was allowed to rent a, what, what movies he, um, he wanted. And he, he chose this one, which I don't think his parents really thought this idea through. It's a film from 1975. <laughs> um <laughs> It's uh, it's directed by Linda Lovelace in Deep Throat, is it? Actually, the, the other film that he rented was um, Kentucky Fried Chicken, which if you've ever seen oh, that one, the final... Um, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, the final, the final sketch in that was kind of not what those 12-year-olds should have been watching. But anyway, but this one is um, <laughs> a, a 1973 film. It's John Landis. I think it's actually the first film he directed, and it's called Schlock. 
and oh, and this, yes. yeah, and and this is a really weird film. But I, I I think I think it's hysterical. It's about a prehistoric ape man who emerges from a cave in a near a small town and causes havoc. He goes on this murderous rampage. It's it's a really weird rampage because sometimes he attacks and kills people. But then other times he does these like really sweet interactions. So like there's the bit where he meets this little girl by a river. You think, oh God, what's gonna happen here? But they end up playing a game of throwing sticks into the uh, the river. And then there's a scene where he finds this blind man who's um, playing piano and he sits next to him and ends up playing the piano with him. It's a really bizarre all over the place movie. I absolutely love it. But the ape man himself is actually played by um, John Landis as well. He's in this great ape-type soup. And the expressions in his eyes that he manages to convey are, are hysterical. The humour is very all over the place. Sometimes it's slapstick. Sometimes it's a little bit of the airplane-style movie. There's one scene right at the start that, as kids, had us in uh, hysterics. There's a news reporter who was investigating all these murders, which were called the Banana Killer. There's this big scene of this like, big massacre, all these dead bodies. And then they run a competition that shows a couple of bags of uh, body parts. The competition is to ring in and how many bodies you think are actually wrapped up in these uh, black plastic bags. It's very airplane style humour. There's also bits of humour that wouldn't get past today there's an ongoing storyline with this um, girl who's been blind her whole life and she's got bandages on and the, the gag is that she just keeps walking around and bumping into walls and things it's the sort of thing that wouldn't get past today and there's also lots of references to movies there's a very very long 2001 a space odyssey scene where the monkey basically finds a load of uh, bananas at, and starts throwing them around like the ape in 2001 does with the bones. It's a very bizarre movie. If your humour has that sort of, that wacky, almost slightly Monty Python-esque thing about you, you could really enjoy it. I, I, I personally think it's it's not like anything that you would see nowadays. It's very much a 70s surreal movie. But I, I think it's, you know, if you want a real surprise movie, then Schlock is a really funny one. It surprised me. surprised <laughs> me how much I disliked it. Um, <laughs> it has got that Monty Python vibe to it, and I dislike that as well. Neil and Graham, I can almost guarantee you've not seen this. Cause oh, it's well, not I've seen abs- this. I've Have seen you? this. Yeah, okay. I saw this on, um, on video uh, back in the 80s. Yeah, that's where I saw it. Yeah. And um, I thought it was hysterical. <laughs> I really did. Mm. It's just totally madcap. I mean, he goes into the movie theater at one stage. I remember there was a whole scene of that where he's climbing over the seats. And, yeah, it's and just takes, completely t- off the wall. And the, the little lad um, in there who whispers in his ear, I and mean, then he takes him to the um, – he escorts him to the bathroom. <laughs> Another joke that may not make it into the film today. (laughs) The fact that at times no one actually recognises that he's an ape. He keeps walking back and forth through this movie theatre and there's this poster that every time he walks past changes to a different film. I don't know if you know what it is. It's just really bizarre. I can't remember remember that. Yeah, it's really bizarre, wacky humour. It is actually available on one of the Amazon Prime channels. I think it's on Arrow. If you subscribe to Arrow, if you oh, basically right. get, take advantage of their seven-day um, free thing, it is on there. It's a really short movie. I think it's only about 80 minutes. It's got that cult movie thing about it. If, if you're into trauma movies, which are sort of like, a, you know, I personally am, I, I think, you, you know, it's a, it's an early style trope, what, what trauma would actually do later on. 
very toxic avengerist. Mm. Neil, you thought America the motion picture was the funniest thing since sliced bread. You'll love it. Okay, I'll put that down on the list. It is very sick, though. It is incredibly sick. Yeah. I mean, there are body bags, and I mean, they're plastic bin bags with bodies, and there's like arms sticking out of them and all sorts of... Ah, terrific. It's very sick humour. Yeah, for a 12 certificate film. (laughs) God, right. I'm sorry. I must apologize. You've done this party, Darren, and we've brought a grumpy old man with us. (laughs) Okay, Darren, I'm I'm going back to door number two. Right, okay, (laughs) what's behind door number four? I've picked one from a time when actually vampires were cool. They were a little bit scary, but they were also very cool at the same time. And uh, not the um, the whiny hipsters that would later become. This one is 1987 and it's uh, Joel Schumacher's The Lost Boys. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. I re-watched this, this film for this list and it stands the test of time. This is a film that I think, even if you're you're not of the eighties, I think you should watch this when you're in your teens. Because to me, it's one of the perfect teen movies. Because it is all about being a teenager. There's themes on there about falling in with the wrong crowd, about peer pressure, drinking, taking drugs, falling in love for the first time, and it's all done around the, the concept of vampires. To me, I think the teen aspect of it in this film is has aged a lot better than, say, Pretty in Pink or The Breakfast Club or any of those type movies. I think it's absolutely wonderful. When I was a kid watching this, I so much wanted to be uh, Kiefer Sutherland. I just thought he was the coolest looking guy in this film. I wanted to have a long coat. I wanted to ride a motorbike like him. I, I just thought it was so good. Even though uh, at the best, like most people watching this, we, we'd be one of the Corys. But that's, that, you know, and... Um, <laughs> But also Star, who is the love interest in this film, I thought she was absolutely gorgeous and I had such a crush on her as a, as a kid. And also the soundtrack is absolutely wonderful. I think this is an absolutely wonderful movie. It's got one of the greatest finishing lines to a film ever. When the old guy says, that's the thing about this town I could never get used to is the damn vampires. And the way the cast all look at him, with a kind of, are you kidding me, look to him. I, I think the ending is absolutely brilliant. Well, one thing I want to say about this film is it's got a great character arcs for, for, for everybody in there. It's got a great story that's at this like, wonderful, unrushed pace. And it's only about 90 minutes. What happened to to ninety minute movies where you know where you could get a whole story in there? Nowadays, 90 minutes are cheap streaming movies. This one, it just tell, it tells a complete story. Absolutely fabulous. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely uh, love this one. And I think it is it is the perfect, fun, uh, cool horror movie. Certainly how you defined the Halloween movie at the beginning, this fits in with it absolutely spot on. It clicks right into place. I once saw an open-air screening of this film. At some point, uh, a wind started up, which matched the soundtrack. It was really good, really eerie. Just great fun. Music, as you say, is fantastic. I'd love to get an album of Thomas Newman's score, which is also really good and unavailable. Overall, yeah, everything. Joel Schumacher's direction, I think, is great. 
that sequence where they're hanging underneath the railway line, dropping into the mist, is just so atmospheric. And I'll be amazed if Neil and Graham haven't seen this. Yeah, I've seen this, yeah. I haven't. I'll put oh. that on the list, yeah. You haven't seen The Lost Boys? I know, no, oh. no, I haven't. Of course, I vampire films for you are Twilight, aren't they? Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, you are so funny. Oh, there's have a punch been, in the nose. Have, yeah, have you been writing all these down in preparation? Absolutely. Um, no, I haven't, and I probably should. Yeah, you'd love this. It is just very, very funny. Everything that you know, Darren said at the beginning of their fun horror movies. Yes, there's a little bit of a scare in it, but nothing major. It plays up the comedy, just the atmosphere on it. And I think Hadil's father was working near this when it was being made. Hadil, if you're listening to this show, please let us know. I'm sure you mentioned something about the making of The Lost Boys. Tremendous choice. All right, I'm moving into this room, Darren. But before I go, what's in the next one? Number five is actually my my zombie movie for, for this little uh, selection. It's one of the Living Dead movies, but not quite what you would probably think. This one is actually 1985's The Return of the Living Dead by Dan O'Hanlon. This is a little different one. This isn't part of the uh, George Romero movies. There was a big legal issue about the rights to rename The Living Dead. So this is not a part of the uh, Night of the Living Dead saga. This is more like a, a meta-comedy-style movie. I don't think it's as well-known as the, the regular Night of the Living Dead films. The premise that this film takes is that it's in a world where the George Romero Night of the Living Dead film exists, but it turns out that that film was actually done as part of a, a cover-up for what actually happened in a small town. Because in this film, there is this warehouse where people work in, where they have all the bodies that were recovered from the actual Night of the Living Dead, the real-life event. And then they made a film to actually cover up what had actually happened. It's all very, very weird meta. And they mentioned Night of the Living Dead quite a few times. But it's done very much more for laughs than those movies. It's very much done like a teen drama at the same time. The funny thing about this film is there are lots of elements in here that get mixed up with the George Romero films. In this movie, the zombies actually talk. They're not just flesh eaters, they're actually brain eaters. They don't just feed on the flesh, they feed on the brains. So, And this is something that actually um, got into popular culture quite heavily, was that people sort of saw zombies as uh, brain eaters. But if you ever watch the Romero movies, that's not in there. They're just flesh eaters. So uh, this one sort of like took its own little mythology in there. It's really hilarious movie. You've got sort of these like um, weird punks who uh, go out on on a night and they go to a um, a graveyard to have a bit of a party and they get attacked by the zombies. Yeah, sorry to cut in on that one. Lena Quigley's describing how she'd like to die and then what happens to her has to be seen to be believed. Yeah, Lena Quigley, by, by the way, <laughs> for any teens who watched this at the time, she had, um, let's just say that she had quite the, um, the scene that probably awakened a lot of fe- uh, feelings in a lot of kids, <laughs> a lot of teens. So let's, let, let's, just, um, let, let's just leave that there. But yeah, although it's sort of done for laughs and it's a comedy, 
It's also very, very gory. But there's also some like really terrifying effects in this film. There's two in particular. There's one where like a yellow uh, naked zombie goes on the rampage. Like the wooden zombie movies, they go for the head and they manage to decapitate it. But that doesn't stop the zombie. Uh, the zombie just keeps like running around without a head. And it's a really, really creepy scene. There's also another zombie in there, which has become known as the tar zombie. It's like almost skeleton, but it's, it's covered in tar. And it looks absolutely fabulous. A mix of someone wearing a suit, but also having animatronics on the face and everything. And it's really bizarre, but it looks great. And, and it sort of stumbles around it in this like, really weird manner that you can't quite work out how they actually did it. In many ways, there's a lot more gore than in a lot of the uh, Romero movies. It's also really, really funny. There's a bit where the uh, the police come to uh, get rid of the zombies and the, the zombies overpower them and they manage to get on the radio and get on the dispatch to uh, asking for um, send more cops because they need more cops to eat. There's just some like, really funny stuff on there. It is unlike any of the other zombie movies that you would sort of probably be, be recognised in, but you'll recognise a lot of the tropes. And like I say, I've chosen it on this list because I don't think it's as well known nowadays. It is currently on Netflix, so it is readily uh, available. But I, I really would check this, uh, this, this film out. It's a nice 80s nostalgia, but very funny. And I think um, as far as parodies go, this is a really good one. Yeah, I mean, I saw it when it first came out, and for me, it didn't quite get the balance of horror and comedy right. But I can see where you're coming from with it. Say, Lena Quigley's death, and then when she comes back as this absolutely bizarre zombie, what's sticking my mind on it? I thought Army of the Dead, Zack Snyder's film, had a almost like a tribute to this and the way that the initial zombie came out. Uh, I thought it played on that. In terms of this series, have you seen Return of the Living Dead Part 3? I've only ever seen the first one. I've, I've not seen the follow-ups. Part 3 is brilliant. Each Return of the Living Dead story is, is independent. They don't link up in any way. And it's a story of first love and trying to keep his uh, teenage girlfriend alive uh, by turning her into a zombie, which is, uh, yeah, bizarre. It's almost Romeo and Juliet meet um, George Romero. As you've been saying it, some of the images have been coming back, certainly of those zombies um, when they were opening those crates. Uh, yeah, that's, it's it's great fun. Graham and Neil, I can almost guess what your answers are going to be for uh, this. Not a chance. No. no. No, not a chance. Although I do like the tagline, they're back from the grave and ready to party. Yeah, <laughs> so I just looked that up. Yeah. <laughs> it looks fun, but no. <laughs> the first room where these two won't go into. <laughs> <laughs> What's okay. behind door number six, Dan? Well, there's no way that we're going behind um, door number six. I, I, I know that for a fact. It's um, <laughs> two thousand um, big. Yeah, <laughs> it's two thousand and seven, <laughs> and it's uh, paranormal activity. Now, oh, no. Yeah. Okay. Now, I have to say, <laughs> um, of all the films on my list, I think this is the scariest. The thing about this film is it's best watched in the way that I watched it. Either watch it with a group of people, 
either in a theatre or in a room with all the lights turned off and watch it with people who've never seen it before. Because I, I think it really only works when you watch it for the first time and you don't know where it's all going to lead. If you've not seen this film already, it's a young couple were moving into a house and weird things start to happen, what they think might be a poltergeist. And so the, um, the guy starts to film him and his girlfriend. They have like a, um, a seance expert who comes out and he's convinced that the poltergeist has taken an interest in the woman. And so they at night leave their video camera filming them in bed. And as things escalate, really weird things start to happen. The things get really more and more disturbing. Um, the girl starts to sleepwalking, so she might be possessed herself. And it's just this amazing build. I saw this at the, um, at the cinema. And I saw it in quite a small theatre, probably about only 100 seats, and it was full. And the experience that I had was the most interactive audience experience I've had ever for a movie because all around me people were getting like really nervous and scared but it was almost like this like community that developed amongst us I I looked to my right at one point and there was this big burly guy who looked looked like a a rugby player or a bouncer but his friends were well I think I looked round and he'd actually zipped up his coat so that the um so, all, all the way up, so that it was covering the bottom of his face so up to his um his nose and mouth. What what this would actually achieve, I have no idea. But it was actually they came at years to talk to comfort. At one point, there was a jump scare, and the lady on, on my left who was actually I think with a with another guy, a boyfriend or somebody, she actually shot her arm out and grabbed my arm. <laughs> and then, like, apologize. She was, she was, she was so, oh, so, so free that she forgot which di- which way the person that she was with was. You know, when the film ends, because the film ends on like, you know, it basically builds to this amazing climax. Because it's a found footage movie, there's no actual credit. So as soon as the film, the final scene stops, the film stops and the lights come on immediately. So you have no time to like sort of calm down. And everybody in the audience, we kind of all looked at each other. In this kind, we were kind of sort of smiling things, but this was like this camaraderie that we'd all got through this together. We were straight. I was looking at people I'd never met before, and we were going like, "Wow, oh my god, I can't believe you know." And as we were walking out, it was like this um, this thing that we'd all got through this film together. And I think very few films, apart from comedies, managed to do that. And I just thought it was an amazing experience. It doesn't hold up watching it for a second time. It's still good, but it, it doesn't get that scared. Because I, I, I threw it through it all. I was absolutely on, on tender hooks as the film based off. And it's all really, really simple stuff, but it is absolutely terrifying. And it's an experience that I'll I'll never I'll never forget. I wish I'd had that viewing experience when I saw it. I mean, I, I like the film. I don't normally like found footage film because, to me, there's always a point where you drop the camera. You wouldn't even bother. For example, we, we spoke about Cloverfield. That sequence when they're in the subway and the spider things are crawling up them, you drop the camera. You wouldn't be around filming it. You'd be legging it out of there. And I'm sorry, if that dropping that camera gives me more speed, I'd be gone. But as everything in paranormal is remote camera work, nobody has to stop anything. It would continue recording. What really unnerved me watching this film is the thought that, well, when you're asleep and the house technically is empty, you've no idea what's going on. And and that plays into this film a couple of times. So I really liked it. I liked the mystery. 
I think the biggest mistake, and I'll be interested in your take on this, Darren, I think the biggest mistake they ever did with Paranormal Activity was doing any sort of sequel and trying to build a mythology where there wasn't one. I liked the second one because the, the second one goes over to the um, the sister and, and what they're, they're doing. I, I actually felt that, that worked. I think from that point on, I still think there were good films as scare movies, but I think it sort of it outwore its, um, its premise. Somewhat, but I, I thought the second one was how it tied in, how the ending tied in with that film, and it sort of created that there was something more going on. I think it just got to a stage when it was like this entire family, everybody involved with family, just happens to be filming all this thing. I, I, I mean, I do believe in suspension of disbelief anyway, but I think it kind of outwore its welcome. I think if the second one had actually finished it there, that that would have been fine. Guys, there are no graphic effects or anything like that in this film. You'll have a blast with it. I recommend going into this room. Mm, Jeff, unfortunately, you've forgotten something. We've seen the trailer, and holy God almighty, that scared the bejesus out of me. The bit where the thing's pulling the, the, the bedclothes off them, and oh, God, no, that's like the worst. So it's a haunted house movie, but you can actually see what's happening. It's not all in the dark. Well, it is all in the dark, but, you know, you get to see it through the camera lens. And the bit with the, I don't know whether it was salt or talcum powder he put on the floor, and then you see where the monster or the creatures walk through. Oh, God, I was, yeah. I saw the trailer in the cinema and thought, nope, I'm never watching that. That was like 2006, seven, sometime around 2007, yeah. Yeah, it's got a huge build-up on the internet, and people are saying yeah. best film they've ever seen, so it was. Yeah, well, it is a good film. I wouldn't go that far. Yeah. Um, but, you know, look, it's Halloween. Everybody's entitled to one <laughs> good scare. I strongly recommend you two watch it. <laughs> Going to a party with you is enough terror for me, Jeff. Thanks. Yes, Okay, indeed. but good choice. Door number seven, Darren. Door number seven is probably as close as a um, a family movie as um, as I'm going to get on this list. 1987 film uh, directed by uh, Fred Decker, and it's called Monster Squad. Uh, oh yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, Rudy, find some silver bullets. And where the hell am I supposed to find silver bullets? Hey, Mark, give me a break. That kid, get a map. Find Shadow Brook. What? Do I look in the index for big scary mansions? Oh, you're a riot. Now, this is something Stephen King always said about his book It that his idea was that he wanted to have an ensemble story of all the classic monsters that he used to see on the screen in movies and and talk about. And and I personally never understood his rationale for that because he he talks about he wanted to have like all the classic Universal monsters in there. And he never really did for me in it. I never, I never recognised any of them in the, the story, even though there's a werewolf and stuff. I never actually recognised it, but that's what he, um, I was on the page. But I think this movie does what he said he was trying to do. Because the movie is a team-up of all the Universal-style movies. The plot is that Dracula is trying to get a, an amulet that will give him power. And so he recruits the Wolfman, he recruits the Mummy, he recruits what they call as the Gillman, which is the creature from the Black Lagoon. He has his three uh, daughters, but he also recruits Frankenstein's monster. And what I love about his film is they're all as you would recognise them from like the films of the 30s and 40s. It's almost like an Avengers team up, but for uh, monsters. You know, it's not like when Universal tried to do their um, Dark Universe tie-ins and they were updating and modernizing all these creatures which never got anywhere anyway but this one is they all look 
from that quite you know classic era. The mummy is with a bandage type mummy. The the Wolfman looks like that you know that Wolfman, and and I absolutely loved it for that. It's been called a Goonies rip off because this story um, follows a um, a gang of nerdy kids who are the ones who to realise that these these monsters are taking over and they're the ones who have to take the fight and defend their town. I personally think it's a lot better than the Goonies. I, I think the kids are not as obnoxiously over the top as they are in Goonies. They've all got those sort of nerdy characteristics. You know, you've got like you know the fat kid, the outlaw, the annoying one and stuff. But I think that the Monster Squad, I think they were a lot more relatable. And it's weird because this film was 1987. So this is a film that I should have been aware of as a kid. And I only became aware of it a few years ago. So I don't know if it got sort of like under-promoted or, or whatever, but I, I think this is just a, a really, really fun movie. I, I personally think it's perfect for Halloween because, like I say, the creatures are almost like a bunch of cosplay. You know, but it's, you know the, the Dracula is the sort of, you know, the sort of, you know, the, the cloak and white pale-faced Dracula. I think this is a really fun party movie. And I think it's something that's, it wasn't well received at the time, but it's, it's got a cult following ever since that. It's also got a few gags in there, which are kind of bordering on adult. There's a whole thing about one of the girls being a virgin and stuff. But I, I think this is a really fun movie. I remember when it came out, and I think one of the reasons you had difficulty sort of tracking it down or knowing about it is it never came to cinemas in the UK. So it was one of those that came directly out on video. It took me a while to track it down, and I was... Again, it just didn't gel for me in the reason it should have. But I think that's the same as all Decker's films. Decker's films really aren't that good, like The Creeps and Robocop 3 as well. The interesting thing from this is co-written by Shane Black around the time he did The Mel's uh, Lethal Weapon. I don't know. Yeah, I was just so disappointed with it. Maybe I should go back and give it another go because it had all the elements in it that I would like and I don't understand why it didn't. I personally did prefer Goonies to this. But again, it's all a matter of taste. It should have had that free showing that you got with something like Van Helsing, which really worked for me. But this just seemed a bit stale. Time for a revisit, I think, Darren, for me. What about you two guys? Would you watch this? I've seen bits of it. We had an exchange student come and stay with us from Germany. And uh, he wanted to see a load of fun films when he was in the UK. And I remember... Thomas got this and Troll and a few other things uh, to watch. And I remember going in and bringing in them in sandwiches and having a party in, in the lounge and watching all these scary movies. And this was one of them. And to me, to pick up on Darren's point, the kids were great. I mean, they really gelled. They really worked together. And you're right, they weren't annoying. They actually looked like they were trying to solve things. And uh, yeah, it, it seemed it seemed okay. I'd probably watch this. It, it definitely does have a huge cult following. It is one of those films that when it works for you, it really works. Uh, what about you, Neil? I thought this film would have been right up your street. This would be that sort of Halloween film you could watch. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't watched it, and I, I don't know why, but I will. I'll put it on the list. Definitely. It does look uh, quite a bit of fun, and if you don't like it, obviously it's going to be yeah, yeah, really a little bit of absolutely. <laughs> That's an added bonus. <laughs> where, other than in Room 7, where can people watch this one, Darren? I saw it on Amazon Prime at one point. I don't know if it's still free to wear, though, because 
Amazon Prime based slot films in and out. Sometimes you have to rent them, sometimes are part of a package. So at some point it probably will um, drop in there again. It, it probably does the rounds of um, of Shudder and, and, and things like that. But it is pretty uh, accessible. You can sort of rent it fairly uh, easily. There we go. An intriguing one for uh, Neil there. Okay, door number eight. Gone for a um, a slasher movie. Uh, and this is probably one of the, the lesser known um, slasher movies. It's, it's from the, um, the Roger Corman um, uh, studios. And it's uh, a 1982 movie called Slumber Party Massacre. Now, oh, <laughs> now, uh, now if now, ever there was a perfect Roger Corman title, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now, now, this is a really interesting one to um, track down and, and watch it because it's Roger Corman. It is very low budget, pretty much a, a rip off um, of the uh, of the Halloween and Friday the Thirteenth style movies, which is what Roger Corman used to do. It was very into the rip offs and the exploitation films. But this was a, a very an interesting one. It was originally written by a. Um, a feminist screenwriter called Rita Mae Brown, who wanted to actually do a parody of slasher movies and and lend a a feminist slant to them. Um, Her script got bought, but the producers bought it with the intention of just making it into a regular slasher movie. So against her wishes, they wanted to take all all her sort of cleverness and and gags out and just make a a straight horror slasher movie for the Saturday Night Mail crowd, which which is what used to watch these films. It ended up being directed by a a woman called Amy Holden-Jones. She was actually a film editor. She she always wanted to direct. Realising that a lot of people got their start from Roger Corman, she managed to, she basically got a bunch of his scripts and she got the script for this one and thought, I can do something interesting with this. So she she filmed a couple of scenes herself and made, and took him to Roger Corman who agreed to finance her film. Believe it or not, she actually, because of that, because she was directing some, she actually turned down being the editor of E.T. to, to, to direct this film. That, that was how much that this that directing really meant for her. She managed to make it almost into like a, a feminist take on the slasher movies. It is your typical slasher movie. It's a bunch of girls are going to have a slumber party. A maniac escapes from a mental institute and goes on a, a rampage. And he eventually arrives at the slumber party and, and attacks them there. But it does have the, um, like I say, a, a more, some feminist leanings. It does away with the whole final girl trope in the fact that there's actually a group of girls who managed to survive this unlike a film like even like a film like halloween where generally curtis she has to be saved at the end by the doctor who's the one to finally drive off michael myers in this one that the girls they managed to um you know save themselves there's this wonderful scene where the uh, the maniac coincidentally there's nothing remarkable about this maniac in there he's not like in the other films where it was always somebody in a mask and always had some sort of like physical disfigurement, almost like a ghostly presence. This is just a guy who's a nutcase, who is attacking people. There's a scene where his choice of, of killing weapon is a, a drill. And this is great scene at the end where the um, one of the girls, she faces off with him and she's got a machete and she manages to cut the drill in half. It's almost like the, the way he reacts, it's almost like he's being castrated because of that so there's those little elements in there so it is a really fun 
slasher movie. It's got all those elements. It's also quite funny as well. There's this, um, there's this really weird scene where one of the uh, murdered girls is stuffed in a fridge. And the characters keep going over to the fridge and they open the fridge and they're talking and the body starts to fall out. And then they'll be distracted and then they'll close the fridge and pushing the body back in. And this happens several times until eventually they, they see the body. So there's lots of like really, really poor taste, but really good humour in there as well. But socially, I think that this film has sort of stood this test of time because a lot of film writers and particularly writers who write about female director movies have sort of like, you know, jumped on onto this. The fact that it's actually one of the few slasher films which was directed and written by women. And so it has that different t- take on it. So it's quite academically, it's quite an interesting film as well. But just as a party thing, just to watch this sort of like really sometimes cheesy, but oh, very gory, but also funny slasher movie in itself. I, I, I personally think that this is one that's really worth seeking out for a, a number of reasons. Well, this is the room for me. It's oh, not, yeah, me too. It's, I, I it's, love the idea. It's not a really? film I've seen and Darren mm. sold it to me. Uh, so you'd sit in here with me and watch a slasher movie then? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, I'm just, uh, while Darren was talking about it, I thought, this is, sounds great. And I looked on Wikipedia. It is hugely praised by lots of famous people. I mean, it, she made it for 200000 and it made $3.3 3 million back. I mean, it's got, you know, 14 times its budget. It's incredible. It's got two names, though, it says here. Uh, Slumber Party Massacre, unknown as Slumber Party Murders in the UK. Okay. So you might want to look for both titles about, if you're searching for it. What about you, Neil? Would you watch this? I was going to say no, but I suppose if Graham is... There we go. I'll then. hold your hand. Don't worry. <laughs> well, that's just uh, putting the Lego movie on again and just ignoring it. But <laughs> yeah, now Graham says he's going to. So that's a, that's a that's a winner there. It's definitely one I want to see. What room are we up to, Dan? Uh, room number nine. I'm just going to do a quote from the film, which is "A naked American just stole my balloon." American <laughs> Werewolf in London. Yeah, yes, 1981. Another John Landis <laughs> movie, and I, I think this film is absolutely fantastic. It's it's one of the great mixes of horror and comedy. It doesn't actually parody the horror elements of it it's actually a straight serious horror movie where the comedy comes in because of the actual the characters that they'd be funny characters as opposed to like spoofing the, the genre just a quick um in case you've not seen this film it's a couple of backpackers from america who are traveling around the uk they end up in a, um, a little small farming town uh, where they go for a drink and they're not particularly welcomed by the locals who are mistrusting them. Brian Glover is, is the main guy, and, and a young Rick Mayle in there as well, in the non-speaking part. They accidentally offend the people there when they ask what a star on the um, wall of the pub is signifying, and it's obvious that they've mentioned something they shouldn't have done, so they get thrown out, and as they're leaving, they get attacked by a, a creature that turns out to be a werewolf. One of them's killed, and then the other one, as Full Moon approaches, starts to realise that they've been bitten by a werewolf. This film is absolutely wonderful. It is really, really scary. I mean, you get a lot of films which have what you call the, the double scare, where you get a scare, and then you get a scare on top of that scare when you've just sort of relaxed. This was this one has a triple scare. <laughs> I remember watching this, for the, I think for the first time with, with my mum, 
and there was this, these triple scare things. We ended up screaming at the screen because every moment where we just sort of relaxed again, the next scare will come and hit us right away. It's, it's absolutely an you know, amazing movie. There's some very weird visuals, some really strange dream sequences with um, Nazi dressed um, style wolves and, and things. But the thing that really is great about this film is some of the special effects. There's some great costuming where some of the characters who are being killed by wolves um, are trapped in a sort of like a limbo as ghosts. As the film goes on, they get more and more sort of rotting away as, as it was. But the scene itself is an absolute storm. It is the, um, is the big werewolf transformation scene. It's absolutely incredible. Nowadays, you'd be able to do this with CGI and it would be a lot easier, but it wouldn't look anywhere near as good. This one's sort of done with like a sort of mixture of, of costumes and practical effects. And the great thing about it is it looks absolutely painful for the actor involved. You see the sort of the snout forming on, on the guy's face. You see the claws of sort of as he turns into this werewolf. It's absolutely incredible. It beats any sort of modern special effects. CGI animation or whatever, it looks absolutely wonderful. And the wolf itself is uh, when it actually goes on this rampage through the streets of London, looks great. It looks absolutely this absolute beast looks absolutely massive and and great. And there's a scene where a, a policeman gets his head bitten off. For for me, this isn't just one of my favorite horror movies. This is probably one of my favorite movies because it's just sort of done so well. And yeah, this, this is a great film. And, and and a great great party movie because it is sort of it's horrifying, um, but it's got like really likable characters who are funny. It's a really fun movie, but also really terrifying. Yeah, I got the soundtrack playing in the car at the moment. The mixture of the songs, songs like "Blue Moon" as he's changing into the werewolf, uh, combined to Elmer Bernstein's score, which is uh, amazing, and it shows the development of John Landis. I mentioned my thoughts on Schlock earlier. From that to this which is not only a great horror movie and loads of comedy, but a really telling statement of Britain in the early 80s. Everything you want to know about Britain in that time period, don't watch documentaries, watch this film. It'll tell you all you need to know. It ain't good. So werewolves are the least of your problems. But uh, no, it's great. It's a classic and deservedly so. And now, Graham, I know you've seen it. Let's have the moment of truth. Drum roll, please. <laughs> yes, I have seen it. Wow. And, it's a uh, very long time ago, so don't try and ask me to remember bits of it. It's not in your collection, then? No. What collection? All uh, right, okay. No. I mean, it's it's got there's so many uh, good uh, secondary characters and things like that. Griff, really... Griffin Dunn as yeah. uh, the character. But, but a question for you, Neil. Um, mm-hmm. You know, at the end, they're in that porno cinema, and apparently they were all played by real porno stars. Is that true? <laughs> well, I'll look it up for you, okay. shall I? <laughs> well, the, and of course, there's, there's the um, big horror thing in it, in it, of course, is Jenny Agatha went on to do one of the most horrific films ever, Call the Midwife. So after that... Yeah. <laughs> no, worse than that, she joined Marvel. Um, <laughs> you mentioned that Moon, the song, whatever, when he's Blue, Blue, Blue Moon. Moon. All the songs apparently have Moon in their title. Yeah, Bad Moon Rising, all of that. And oh, it's a great, wow. great soundtrack, yeah. Tremendous soundtrack. There's, there's a little funny gag in there in the credits. There's a scene where he's trying to get arrested 
and, and he can't get himself because he actually says, what does a guy have to do to get arrested in this country? Because he wants to basically be locked up when he turns into a werewolf. And he starts running around shouting, um, Prince Charles is a... And he actually uses the, uh, the F word. And I don't know if this is um, too actually... A, a, a play on this gag but in the opening credits right at the end it, there's a line that basically says something along the lines of um, the producers of this film would like to congratulate uh, Prince Charles on his marriage to Lady Di uh, yes yeah <laughs> yes it's um oh no there's, there's just so much so many things you could pick out from that film yeah, as you say, Rick Mail in the beginning, that joke about uh, Remember the Alamo, which I think is, is hysterically funny <laughs> to this day. All the stuff in London, Jenny Agada. Oh, dear. Right, okay then. So now for your final room, you've got to top that, Darren. Okay. Well, well one of the fun things about about having a, um, a party when it comes to these sort of films and, and one of the sort of the guilty pleasures that we have is watching a really, really bad film that is also really, really funny because it's how bad it is. Now, I have to say that this is something that I don't think works that often because the fact of the matter is a lot of bad movies are bad, <laughs> even to make fun of. They're really boring. You, you can watch a, a bad movie to make fun of, and then after about ten minutes, you've just had enough, and you you um you, you want to turn it off. The choice that I've got here is a bad movie, a badly made movie that I think is actually fun to watch all the way through, and it's actually Plan Nine from Outer Space by Ed Wood oh. Junior from nineteen fifty nine. People have claimed that this is the worst movie ever made. No, it's not. I have seen a lot worse yeah, yeah. badly made movies, but also movies which were unwatchable. And I would argue that Plan 9 yeah, from Outer yeah, Space... Yeah, they haven't seen America the Motion Picture, have they, who ever said yeah. that? <laughs> the thing about Plan 9 from Outer Space is I actually think it is quite watchable. And one of the things where I think it's watchable is it does have this really naive charm about it the funny things about this film the fact that it's so bad are just glaringly hysterical i mean the fact that for a start the, the production issues where you've got a graveyard where at one minute it's night and the next minute it's daylight but also the fact that they're running through this this graveyard and you can tell that it's just the same plot of um, of studio just shot from different angles where they're just running back and forth through it you can actually see the cardboard headstones falling over and you can see the carpet sort of coming up at times. It's not so much that it's bad. It's just so unbelievably silly that this, that this sort of like, you know, was, was made in this way. But it's also got this, um, this like sort of like naive charm of it because of that. It is because it's such a bizarre story. The fact that it's like, uh, an alien invasion that suddenly turns into um, resurrecting the dead. And the reason why is because basically Edward had this footage of um, of Bela Lugosi that he filmed before he died, and he just wanted to incorporate that into the film. So he just made this, um, you know, this whole movie around that. And it's got just sort of like really bizarre acting. I mean, the guy that plays the policeman, you know, you can't tell what he's saying at times. It's got this sort of like, you know, this really gruff voice. <laughs> It, it is completely watchable. 
it's it is you know you can't you know watch this movie it looked decent the actual even though the sets are bad and everything it's filmed in this really bright decently looking way and i think it is a really fun movie to to watch and to poke fun at but it, it does you know you you can get through it all. and i think a lot of these sort of like so bad it's good movies have this kind of really i don't know this kind of really sort of dirty cheap horrendous feel to them this one doesn't it has the sort of the, the charm of the uh, of the 1950s style sci-fi movies and i think the, when you watch um, the film Ed, edward with johnny depp i think this makes it even even though that's a dramatization of what he was really like when you see that how this film came about this this oddball um group that it surrounded himself with i just think it's got this sort of like this really naive charm to it that makes it sort of like you know a, a viewable watching and it is no matter how much like i say that people say it's the worst film it, which it isn't when you watch it and you see oh, how bizarre and how ridiculous the whole thing is i don't think you can actually uh grasp that until you've watched it and you've seen the, the trees falling down in the background and everything and how cheap it actually all looks i, I think it's it is an amazing film to, to watch for so many reasons it certainly is different. Um, what's that line in it? The future where we're all going to spend the rest of our lives. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it has a quality about it. I, I'll, I'll, gi- I'll give you that, and it definitely isn't the worst film I've ever seen. It is an experience to watch it. I guess the nearest thing to it, you know, those those things that are on TV and on, on theatre that Neil likes, or is it the play that goes wrong? It's a bit like that, really, but for a film. Um, yeah. yeah, strange. Um, but there's nothing horrific in it, so I can't believe either of you two will have a problem with it. No, I've seen I've seen it, and I, I I thought it was just absolutely hysterical. I mean, even the plan that the aliens come up well, Plan Nine that they come up with, you know, let's resurrect all the, all the dead, <laughs> then the people of Earth will definitely listen to us. Yeah, it's just like what, and it has a nice punk sort of sensibility to it you know that as darren said you know so bad it's good type thing it's a moment in history really i wouldn't say i enjoyed it but i just thought yeah it's fun and it's definitely out there i know it won didn't it win two golden turkeys for best uh, worst director and worst film or something but yeah well deserved what i think makes it even funnier is you can tell that it's actually been done straight a, a, a lot of sort of the, yeah, um, a lot of these sort yeah. of um, these movies which are um, so bad it's good. I think a lot of those they're kind of sort of trying for that somewhat that they're they're trying to make them a little bit sort of bad just to sort of like you know you know. Whereas this one, you get the impression that they were trying to make a good movie in their heads. They were it was straight down the line. This is, this wasn't like it's not like a tongue in cheek like a trauma type movie or that sort of thing. It's not a tongue in cheek and, and sort of a nodding and winking to the audience. They try to make a good film. And that's when that's but that makes it even funnier. They were going for it full on and everybody else is just standing back going, these guys are lunatics. <laughs> It just doesn't work. But, yeah, I mean, it's got a huge cult following now. Who's laughing now, really? Yeah, yeah, well, he's not because he died uh, (laughs) uh, in the 60s. Um, But uh, before it found that, he ended up making porno movies, funny enough. We're back to that. We're back to that, yeah. Um, I take it you've not seen this. No, no. 
I don't know. Never heard of it. Really? Uh, no, 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 don't don't bite. Don't rise. Don't rise to it. Don't rise to it. Just walk away. Walk away now. Yeah. Right. Well, thank you for those ten rooms. And as oh, I said, I, I I've already picked out mine. It's the one I haven't seen. So before we go to the TV rooms, let's wander down to the dance floor and see what music you've got playing there, Darren. Okay, so I've got a little five-track playlist that I've got for the for you all for the Halloween party. First up is a, a song which I think is actually probably one of the greatest actual Halloween-themed songs ever. But the funny thing is, and it's from a movie, but the funny thing is it's not from a Halloween movie. It's actually from a Christmas movie. And it's from the uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas. And it's a song which is oh, basically, yes. it's mm. a song right at the start of a film called This Is Halloween, written by Danny Elfman. And I actually think that this is the perfect Halloween song because it is, for a start, it is all about Halloween. But it's also incredibly, incredibly spooky. And it's a homage to Halloween and to everything which is good about Halloween. And it's got a great tune to it. It's got great singing. And it's all these sort of like monsters and creatures and ghosts all singing about what a great time it is to be uh, Halloween. And I just think it's absolutely uh, just a a wonderful, wonderful song. And in the film, The Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, probably the best song in there is What's This? Where it's the the character running around and he's binding Christmas. And so what's this? What's this? I think this song basically gives it a real run for its money, though, for the best song of um, of the film. And, uh, you know, but yeah, I, I, th- I think this is absolutely a, a, a wonderful track. I think it's an amazing song. Yeah, I would agree. It's a great opener, great track. And as you say, sums up all things Halloween, combined with the visuals as well. It's amazing. Ooh, good start, Darren. What's, what's next on the playlist? May start to go a bit weird from here. Oh, the next song, it's a song called Pet Cemetery, And it's the title track of the film Pet Cemetery which was uh, in, in the film was done by the Ramones, which I got a real kick out of, of all the sort of, of all the bands to do a, a film tie-in track. Um, the Ramones just seems a really, really weird choice, you know, but even though Stephen King's, but it, it works great. So Stephen King's a really big fan, but I have to say it's not the Ramones version that I've um, picked for this. Because I, um, when I went to this list, where Pet Cemetery by the Ramones was like, I've got to have this in there because I think it's a great song. It's fun because it's the Ramones and everything. And I've not heard it for about 10 or 15 years. And when I went back to it to actually listen to it again, I couldn't believe how slow it actually is. Because it's a Ramones song, I imagined it to be like really, really fast paced and everything. Because the lyrics are great. The lyrics have um, the typical like Ramones, like simple mindedness. I don't want to be buried in a pet cemetery. I don't want to live my life again. But the song itself doesn't feel like a remote. It's not got that sort of that tempo, that um, that incredible sort of like pace to it, and that sort of. So what I actually did, I actually found a a cover version, and it's actually a live cover version by a band called The Creep Show. Oh, are a Canadian band. They've been going since two thousand and five. They've had three lead singers. And they did a cover, a live cover version of this, and they pretty much played it how I adore is 
remembered falsely the Ramones to play the song. They play it really fast, really punky. The the singer that sang this, which was the second singer, a singer by called Sarah Blackwood. And and I personally love cover bands. I particularly love it when you get a female cover band who are playing male tracks. I always think that that lends a little sort of something different to it. So that that's my um, choice. So it's the Pet Cemetery song, but this one's actually performed by, um, like I say, by the Creep Show. To be honest, their version of it sounds more like a Ramones song than the actual Ramones version of Pet Cemetery, and it is on there on the uh, YouTube. But the Creep Show they actually specialise in doing like horror style songs. There's a whole um, genre movement, whatever you call it in in, in music, called, um, I think it's called Psychobilly. So it's like rockabilly music, but done with a more sort of like punky sound of like a more horror-based theme to it. So that's um, that's the one that I've got for number two. That's off their album, Run For Your Life. Yeah, it's great, great, great little band. Yeah, mm. you, you know, yeah, yeah, I know the band. Yeah, yeah, I don't know the track. I've seen them live. Yeah, <laughs> it was but, over yeah. quite quick. Yeah. You've seen them live, have you, Neil? Was yeah, that yeah. Joke? Oh, okay. Where yeah, was great that? London? No, no, Lancaster. Okay, working so so far. Track number three, Darren. Okay. Well, this is going better than I expected because I thought this was these songs were going to be completely off, yeah. off the wall. But I, like I say, I, I found when I was like researching this, I actually threw my initial list completely in the bin because after I found that, I started um, getting more into this some um, psychobilly uh, uh, movement, and I found two other tracks here from from my choices of three and four, which are both psychobilly, and I think that this really encompasses Halloween. Because you've got like these songs have got like um it's psycho Billy Mover, it's got like a like a punk rock type pace to it, an alternativeness, and it ties great into Halloween. You know, because Halloween has that sort of to me, Halloween has a more of an alternative type feel to that to the whole thing about it. Obviously it's you know, to, uh, I used to be friends with this um with this uh, goth stroke emo girl who used to say that uh, her and her friends, the um Christmas wasn't a big deal to them, but they loved Halloween. And this is sort of the vibe I'm getting from the uh, the next couple of tracks here because because of that. So number three is actually a band called the uh, the Woggles, um, who I've not been able to find out a great deal about, apart from the fact that they're I believe they're American. They've been going since 2000, and they're classed as what's called a, a garage band. But they did a song in 2000 called Dracula's Daughter. Way she looks at me sometimes. Can't put a tingle on my spine. She wears a whole lot of makeup. I wonder what she's trying to hide. I never see her in the daylight, but she always comes a creeping in the night. Yeah. And this is a this is a really funny little track because the song is that this guy meets this girl. He likes her. They go back to her place, and it turns out that it's actually Dracula's daughter. In the course of the song, he meets Dracula. He gets attacked by uh, the Dracula's daughter. And again, this is a really fun, fast-paced, alternative, little um, psychobilly song. And so, and it is um, available on YouTube to find. This album comes from a uh, an album called Monster Party. 
the entire album you could basically just put on for any Halloween party, let it roll, and you're going to get lots of spooky, you know, monster-type movies. So the whole album is perfect for that. But this Dracula's Daughter just stuck out because he was just... I like songs that tell a story, and this one telling a story of a guy who accidentally picks up Dracula's Daughter uh, and then ends up, like, you know, fleeing away from her. I just thought it was a great little... um, Great little fun Halloween track. Yeah, there are some amazing names in psychobilly groups. You know, the blood-sucking zombies from outer space is one. They they say the Cramps were the, the first band to try this sort of horror, sort of fast rockabilly music style. And I saw the Cramps way back in 1978 when they were called the Menstrual Cramps. So, um, yeah, they've come a long Whoa. way. How, how tasteless. That they were something else. Okay, so number four, uh, it's another uh, psychobilly uh, song, uh, another band, a uh, female fronted band who write lots and lots of songs about horror and sci fi and that sort of thing. And the band is called Zombina and the Skeletons. They've actually been going a long time. They're a, um, a Liverpool band formed in 1998 and up until about 2017 they, they were still going from what i can gather they uh, their website has uh, has gone down now i can't find any sort of presence on social media or anything so i don't know if the um if the what's been happening over the last couple of years has kind of um brought them to an end the song that i found is a song called nobody likes you when you're dead they <laughs> This one tells a story, and the story is that there's a, um, a girl at school. She's the popular one. She's the one that all the guys want to um, want to date, all the girls want to hang out with. She's like the cool girl. Everyone likes her. And then she basically gets turned into a zombie, and after that, nobody wants anything to do with her. And so it's her sort of lamenting that basically, well, like the song is, nobody likes you when you're dead. And I have to say that the, the, this, this girl, she's got this... And she's, she's a great band because they've got all the sort of like the punk rock attitude and everything, but she's got this like really almost sweet voice, but she's it's backed up with this like absolutely great punk rock attitude towards it that sort of like is a really nice contrast. She's a great, you know, she's got a great voice, great singer. The band's got loads of energy. Again, Zombina and the Skeletons, I, I found quite that all of their songs are to do with sort of the paranormal or horror or sci-fi. Um, there's quite a few of the songs that were sort of that I was sort of like, you know, on the fence about choosing. There's one called The Zombie Hop, which is almost like a little dance song, but to do with uh, zombies, a zombie hop. There's one called um, Mega Madness, which is kind of a bit like a homage to Japanese superhero anime. And then there's a song which is called um, That Doll Just Tried to Kill Me. <laughs> which is, you know, like, which is basically kind of like a Chucky style adventure. Again, all of their stuff is on YouTube. So I really would, you know, recommend them um, checking it out. Maybe sort of if you can uh, still, like, you know, buy the CDs or everything and maybe sort of, like, you know, try and sort of, you know, keep them um, a, a British uh, Liverpool band, uh, you know, keep them, uh, you know, 
keep their memory alive as such. I, I, I personally have got to say I've loved going through all these uh, psycho Billy um, songs. Like it was something that I've never really come across, and I've got to say I probably might try and track down a few CDs of of, of the stuff in there. But yeah, the um, zombie number skeletons. Nobody likes you when you're dead, and it's one that if I can imagine you putting this on a. People don't use turntables anymore, but putting this on the speaker and having people uh, dressed in Halloween garb or dancing to it, I think it's perfect for that. Sounds like your type of song, Neil. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, the the, the band members, they, they're really into it. I mean, the names, I'm just looking them up now, is Zombina Venus Hatchet is the, the, the lead singer, and then there's Doc Horror on guitar and... Uh, X-ray spec on saxophone and uh, Louis Di- Diablo. <laughs> it's just like what the hell? These people are so far into this. They've got they've got six albums out, so it should be enough to keep everybody happy. Okay, final track before we go and uh, examine your TV rooms. Okay, so a little bit more mainstream um, and, and popular after after that, and probably one that you'll you'll all recognise. It's Thriller by Michael Jackson. Darkness falls across the land. The midnight hour is close at hand. Creatures crawl in search of blood to terrorize your neighborhood. And again, I think this is just a, a really great, spooky Halloween homage. The thing that I, I chose this one is, I think this is a song which is the full package. In that, if you're going to listen to this song have it also have the video on the screen because I think the whole the, the song itself is is great, but I think you need the video itself because there's so much of a full performance of it. For a start, the actual the costumes, the, you know, the costumes are amazing. Michael Jackson actually, this is back in the day when he was actually like really really good looking before he started to look a bit weird, and when he puts on the makeup and turns into this like really sinister skeleton like creature, it's absolutely terrifying. If you watch the whole video where with the girl at the uh, at the cinema, and then at the end when he turns to the camera, and he's got those like be orange eyes. It's you know it's a really great music video, but also the dancing as well and the choreography. The song's great, but you need to have the visuals as well on on a big screen. I, I think it's a it's a really marvelous thing. The thing that I also to remember about Michael Jackson's Thriller is. This is the first videotape that I remember people actually owning as opposed to just renting, buying the original. Because I, I remember going to the um, our local video store and the, the guy there mentioned to us that he'd actually ordered 50 copies of the, of the making of Michael Jackson's Thriller. And we kind of said, well, what are you going to do with 50 copies? And he just said, I've already sold 40 of them. Because at that point, the videotapes were quite expensive and people just would like rent them. This was the first one that I actually remember people buying and owning. So it's quite so, so from a sort of like a, a film kind of video um, store perspective, I think that's a kind of like a really interesting thing. But yeah, I just think that this is, this is a, a, an absolutely work of art. The song, the song's great. It's got the, um, um, I'm pretty sure it's Vincent, um, Vincent Price basically talk over halfway through it. It, it is. It, it, it is, is, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, ju- I just, but yeah, it's 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 a great song. It's a great, and it's got like this spooky um, background to it. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think this, and it's and it's iconic. It, it fits in with any sort of Halloween celebration. So yeah, so Michael Jackson's Thriller. 
That's your third John Landis pick as well. He directed it. I remember it, it was shown late one Friday night on Channel 4. First it was, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. I stayed and everybody, Yeah, and everybody videoed this thing and uh, just kept playing it back and back. So I can understand how the, that tape sold, but it was, yeah, it was just unbelievable. And the fact that, you know, it is now still the most remembered track off that album. Yeah. And that's a great yeah. album. Yeah. Don't get me wrong yeah. on that. But yeah, there is a bit on YouTube, if you search for it, Darren, of Vincent Price being on a chat show and asked, could he remember the lines? And he gives <laughs> the whole thing out on this chat show. It's great. Oh, right. Yeah, well worth having a look for. Yeah, oh, Vincent wow. Price um, delivering his uh, thriller monologue. Excellent. But five great tracks, I, I will admit, some I hadn't heard of. Psychobilly was a term I was blissfully unaware of until this afternoon, so I shall be looking up YouTube um, when I get home. So let's go over to your five TV rooms to see if I can persuade, or if you can persuade, Neil and Graham to go into any of them. What's behind door number one? Okay, so door number one is something which has become a, um, a Halloween tradition on television. And it's basically the um, the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror special. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. an easy one. Even though the Simpsons, like a lot of people, I think they've basically, for, for me, they've outgrown their welcome. It once was a great show, but it's just gone way too long. And I think they've, they've sort of lost touch of the premise that they originally had but the one thing that's remained great is the treehouse of horror special and on the very first season of the simpsons there's an episode where it's halloween and bart and um, lisa start telling each other spooky stories and then they go into the story it's always stories based around the simpsons but in a in a horror element and the and they've done one for i think i think it was one season where they may have not done one but for um it must be like 30 odd years now or whatever they've done a, a treehouse of horror and it's always the same three stories not really set in the simpsons world but all the simpsons characters and a lot of them are actually spoofs or parodies of um of popular well-known horror movies they've pretty much done all the twilight zone episodes of um at one time or another and given like a simpsons type theme the great thing about it is if you've got disney plus now you have got all of these on access, unless some of them have been taken off for um, for PC reasons, you never know. Um, just a few. Um, I picked out, you know, because like I said, there's about thirty of them, and any, any of them that you put on, you'll, you'll have a good time with. But just to um, pull a few out there, which are worth having a look on. In the first one, the first season that we did, there's a really fun alien abduction story that's that's got a real laugh the second season they did a um one of the stories was to do with the uh, the monkey's paw old uh, fashioned for uh, story but season three they did a there's a there's a zombie outbreak with a uh, set on the return of the uh the living dead that i mentioned earlier there's also a really fun king kong episode where it's got homer as um as king kong and he's done in black and white to make it look like the original. Season nine had a really fun and really dark one called Night of the Dolphin, which is where Lisa get, gets upset because there's a dolphin in captivity at the, the Simpsons version of SeaWorld, and she releases it. The dolphin goes out to sea, recruits all its dolphin friends, and then they basically march on Springfield to take revenge. So that's like a, a, a dolphin invasion story. 
There's also a really dark one on season seven, which uh, I've not got. I've not got the episode name, but it's to do with Bart Simpson having a twin. That is the evil twin. That the story is that Bart, when he was born that day, and there were Siamese twins, and that one of them was considered to be the evil one, so they kept him locked in the uh, in the attic, fed fish heads and everything. The, the twist is, it turns out they've put, they've put the wrong one in the attic. That they basically put the good one in the attic and the, 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 the Bart that they left out is the evil one. But it ends really nasty because they basically put the Bart that we know and love in the attic in his place and then basically start feeding him fish heads. So, so it's a really dark episode. Any of these are really fun episodes to sort of dip into. But you, yeah, this is um, one of the great, um, for me, the Halloween traditions. Uh, I can imagine Graham and Neil watching yeah. all of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Ugh, we'll have no problem with room number one. Room number two. This is an old one, and it's from 1980, and it's uh, one of the episodes of Tales of the Unexpected. This is an episode, it stars Timothy West and Susan George, and it's called Royal oh, Jelly. God. I know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And it's... I, I remember seeing it as a kid and absolutely being really freaked out by it. And the thing is, with a lot of some of these tales of the unexpected, just in case you didn't know, tales of the unexpected was a um, a television series back in the seventies and eighties. Each episode was just a, a single story, half hour story, uh, which would be a story with a bit of a macabre twist to it. They would get quite a, a lot of. Um, famous actors and actresses to, to be in this thing. A lot of them were based on Roald Dahl's adult short stories, which I, I also would heartily recommend as a, if you fancy a good read. This particular one, this was a, well, a lot of them, if you watch today, don't stand the test of time. There's something really creepy about this one. It's a simple story. It's about a beekeeper and his wife who have a baby that's really sickly and isn't, uh, isn't nourishing its uh, um, properly and we don't know if the baby's going to survive and the beekeeper comes up with the idea of um, actually adding royal jelly to the baby's milk and the baby starts to get healthier and start growing at a really um, at, a, at a large uh, rate and the beekeeper himself actually starts to take massive and massive quantities of this royal jelly I, w- I won't say what happens at the end but the actual conclusion is really really weird and it's and some people might find it really cheesy but it's really unsettling and it's what happens to this baby once it's fed all this royal jelly and what happens to um timothy west as a as himself as as he's had as had these copious amounts of royal jelly it gets really creepy him and it's very subtle as as well him going around the house and starting to buzz is a really un, unnerving film so this is if, if you want a bit of um like 70s 80s tv british nostalgia it's good for that but it's also there's just something that really creepy and uncomfortable i think if i made it today probably wouldn't have the impact because i probably have to they wouldn't be able to keep it as subtle as it is but it is a really creepy story i think timothy west is really good in it and as you say the final image is um just disturbing I mean, tell us what we expected. It's, I think it's on UK Gold or something. But the Royal Jelly episode, I did find it on YouTube. So it is it is from there. One for you then, Neil? Mm, yeah, maybe. Yeah. That's a no the then, everybody. Translate Neil, speak for you. <laughs> I'll, I'll add it to the list. 
Is that okay, Jeff? A great yeah, series, a great series. I, I mean, I watched the series, read the books because they, they, they produced the books, and you know, they were very, very quick little short stories. So it was great. It's great. Lamb to the Slaughter, which, funny enough, is what I was thought you were going to introduce because that also had Timothy West and Susan George in it, I think. Mm. Um, but that had a very different payoff at the end. Really, really <laughs> clever. Okay, yeah, intriguing. Uh, and uh, behind the next door. Uh, okay, the next door is an episode of um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So a little bit more uh, a modern one, this one. Now, this 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 isn't actually a, an official Halloween episode, although there were a couple of really fun Halloween episodes that they did. There's uh, one episode where the gang get trapped into a uh, at a Halloween party in a frat house. Um, there's another one where there's a, a spell that makes all the characters take on the uh, personalities of whoever they've actually dressed up as for Halloween. So Buffy's kind of like, um, she's dressed up as a like a, like a little Goldilocks type figure. So she becomes this like really scared little female uh, girl character. So that's, they're really fun episodes. The one that I'm going to go Can, I, can I guess which one it is, Darren? Yeah, go ahead. Hush. Correct. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> correct. Um, this is on season four, and, and it's actually one of the few, what I would say, outright horror episodes, because but Buffy had lots of like horror characters in, but it wasn't really a horror show. It was more like an action show with vampires and monsters and things. This is a really horror story, though. And the story is that a group of demons who are called the Gentlemen, these like really weird characters in suits and who have got these like really creepy henchmen in them um, straight jackets come to uh, Sunnydale and they cast a spell that takes away everybody's voices in the town. So the town gets totally um, cut off. No one can communicate with each other by, by talking. Everyone's in silence. They're having to use gestures and, and, and mimes and things. And the uh, the reason why they've done this is that they're carrying out a, a ritual which involves um, taking people's hearts. And so they've cast this spell so that basically people can't cry for help and they'll be able to like, easily like, kidnap people and take away their hearts. It's an absolutely amazing episode that the creatures in it are look absolutely terrifying and their mannerisms i mean but the, the actual premise is horrific enough not being able to not being able to talk but it's also really really funny there's a there's an episode where giles has to um explain what's going on and he comes up with a, a series of sla- of um, slides on the projector, like a, like a, like, a, like almost like telling almost like a comic strip story. The episode is absolutely great, and it's also the special effects in it have really outdone themselves on it. The the, the scenes where the um, the gentlemen are like floating through the town, which looks absolutely incredible. Whenever people do the um, the uh, the best of Buffy episodes, this one. If it's not at the top of the list, it's not far from it in most people's eyes. It's a really, really great episode. And I think even if you're not a Buffy fan, because most of the uh, Buffy shows were were self-contained, this one's one really to check out on because it's just an amazing story. And it's and it's also it's season four. It's when Buffy was actually, I think, at its peak in terms of characters and storytelling. It's brilliant. It's uh, one of my favourite episodes of the series. Now, little story, Neil at one point tried to watch Buffy. I did. I uh, got bored after a bit. Yeah, he got bored the moment we told him that Hush was coming up. 
And then oh, he no, stopped. No, I didn't. I, well, I, I didn't quite reach that one. No, there's a lot of episodes. So yeah, it's the only. Isn't it the only episode to have got a an Emmy nomination? Oh right. So well, um, maybe then. Yeah, because uh, I mean, the mainstream really ignored Buffy. I mean, they were doing amazing things and um, nothing they did got any recognition. I, I know. I, I agree with you, Graham. I mean, whatever happened to that Joss Whedon chap? <laughs> oh, God. The episode where Buffy's mum dies, I think is an absolutely great drama show just in its own right. I, I, I would, for, for an episode about death, I would actually put that against any other serious quote um, TV show out there. I think it's an amazing episode. But yeah, you're right. It, I never. I don't think it ever got its um, its due. Yeah, um, once more with feeling. The musical episode's really good. Oh, that's right. Or the body, the one where the music is all diegetic. It's no, incredible. It's just, yeah, yeah, that's it's really good. And again, one of those things <laughs> on TV that you couldn't watch it out out of sequence you had to watch the mm. whole thing in sequence otherwise it it uh, didn't make sense but yeah no good one good one so where are we on now number 4 okay so i'm going to say what the series and see if you can guess what the episode is is from for this one <laughs> it's the um, it's the tv series the x files So can you guess what episode it's going to be? Um, or describe the episode? It's the one of the Toomey ones, I think. The first one? The first Toomey one, where he's going through all the pipes? No. Oh, God, yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> there we go. No, I don't okay. know. So it's the, um, it's the second episode of season four. This one, I remember it being on Skype. Been immediately because I was a big X Files fan. Uh, this is when X Files was like uh, again at its peak of its popularity, and they, on Sky there was a warning before the episode aired saying that some people may find this episode disturbing. So I immediately was intrigued. And apparently in America as well, they had the same warning when Fox aired it. Fox only ever aired it the once because it was considered so controversial, and it's an episode called Home. Just to give you a, a briefing, it's X-Files meets Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The episode starts where Mulder and Scully are um, come to a small town where a deformed dead baby has been found buried. Mulder's suspicion basically falls on a trio of brothers who are part of a family in, in, in who live on the edges of the town, whose family have been secluded from the rest of the town since the Civil War. And uh, Mulder and Scully basically get told by the sheriff that they, they suspect that the family are basically been inbreeding for years and years. And uh, Mulder and Scully take the investigation and they, they're worrying because it's only three brothers that are left. They're fearing that they've managed to kidnap a woman and are holding her prisoner. The actual reality of what's actually happening is even worse than that from a creepy horror sort of <laughs> sensibility. This episode was only ever shown once, partly because it's just sort of so creepy and I wouldn't say violent, but it's got a real sort of like un unsettling, nasty vibe to it. It's kind of like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre episode because you've got like a, a weird family at the edge of town um, who have, you know, have been like years of inbreeding, so the hillbilly psychos. 
uh, for for want of a better term. And the episode is really dark. When when Mulder and Scully actually go into the house, it's really tense. It's an absolutely terrifying and unsettling episode, but I think it's absolutely, but it's also absolutely fabulous. Like I say, for a long time, I don't know if it's changed since, but Fox basically said they would never allow it to be shown um, again, which meant it was even more notorious. Whenever the um, people vote for their favourite X-Files episode, this one generally comes right at the top of the list because it is a real fan favourite. It's really worth seeking out, but it is it is not for the faint-hearted. It is really unsettling. And the, and the ending as well, um, when it all comes down... Um, it leaves it open-ended, but again, the actual, there's terrifying connotations in the final scene of it. It's really something, I think it pushed the envelope more than any other X-Files episode. And when you think how many sort of like scary X-Files episodes were, unsettling one, that's really saying something. I thought I'd seen I don't them know, all. I don't, I don't know this at all. So uh, I'm, I'm in this room. Watching this, I think. Yeah, Neil will be pushing past us to get in there first. <laughs> I think Sky might have only ever shown it the once. It was kind of one that played havoc with the sort of you know the ratings because it it pushed the envelope more than any other. Um, just an interesting little tidbit, actually. The um, quite a few influences on this episode because there have been sort of instances of sort of inbreeding families out in the middle of nowhere and stuff. What one of the influences was a story that Charlie Chaplin told in his autobiography where he claims he went to a Welsh village while on um, on tour and he actually uh, went to this mining town he stayed with his family and one of the fem- members of the family was a um, a guy with no arms and legs who they used to keep in a cupboard so that was one of the and that actually if you watch the episode that plays somewhere in with the, what the actual the big twist is okay well <laughs> Sam <laughs> Taking my breath away, I did not know any of that. No, and, me neither. Uh, mm. Have to so check I, that out. I I've thought I'd seen, seen them all, but maybe. Neil will be fighting past us to get in there yeah. and watch it. <laughs> Final room, then. I personally think I've saved the best and the most interesting for last, and this is one of my fav- one of my favourite TV moments. Ever and it's also um, British. It's also part of a BBC, which I think makes it even cooler. Nineteen ninety-two, Saturday night, Halloween night, and the BBC aired oh, a, a documentary yeah. called Ghost Watch. I don't know, and it was presented. <laughs> do you, if, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and this was a pseudo documentary or a mockumentary, as as it would later be called. Uh, special where Michael Parkinson was hosting a show which was allegedly investigating paranormal activity, presented like uh, you would expect a BBC um, investigation special to be. Michael Parkinson was was in a studio with um, a paranormal um, expert. You had um, Sarah Green and um, Craig Charles who were doing an outside broadcast from a house that was allegedly the site of paranormal activity where a, a mother and two daughters for um, for some time had a poltergeist in their house. And there was camera footage that they put in the bedroom which showed um, what could have been like poltergeist-type activity. Um, you also had Mike Smith, um, Sarah Green's uh, husband, who was hosting telephone phone lines, uh, pretty much how you would see um, Crime Watch uh, nowadays, if that, if that show's even still going, inviting people to ring in to tell their own um, 
uh, ghost uh, stories or paranormal stories. First, sort of how of this film, uh, this, this show, it basically just go it plods along quite sort of slowly, but it's kind of building up the, the tension. And you sort of, you know, Sarah Green's in this house with his family. And as it goes on, things start to, weird little things start to happen. If you look closer, you can spot like a figure in the, um, in the background or caught, or just, a, or caught on, um, caught in a mirror image. And then people start ringing into the show and saying that they've seen this image in the background. And then they look back at the footage and they can't see anything. It all starts to get a bit weird. And then one of the kids starts to act really strangely. They say they've been talking to this, this ghost called Pipes so-called because it is banging against the pipes of the of the house and as the show goes on they start to hear cats coming from somewhere in in, in the house and one of the girls starts to she gets all scratches on her faces and she starts to talk in this like really spooky voice it sort of escalates and escalates until eventually they, you know there's uh, there's like a wind uh, a wind blows through the studio michael parkinson ends the show boys are walking round um and he's sort of like um, basically sort of muttering to himself and it turns out he's possessed by this sort of demon because the twist is that while this this show's been going on it's accidentally awakened this whole sort of um, this whole like ghost phenomenon almost like a live seance now this show like, like, like as, as you can probably tell by the way I'm talking about it it was a stage dramatization but it fooled a hell of a lot of people because it was done so effectively and because you've got regular TV presenters giving it a bit of authenticity if you're into TV and films and you're sort of like, you know, you have a base of, of, of camera work, stuff like that, you can probably spot early on that, that this is a dramatisation. Some of the acting, particularly by the experts, it doesn't quite sort of match 100%. But it is really, really effective and it does tell a really good story. And it, it does get really, really creepy and disturbing. But like I say, a lot of people took this to be real and people started ringing into the um, to this show. The thing about the telephone number is it was meant to be that people would ring into the show and then they would have uh, phone operators being there to reassure people that what they were watching was a dramatisation. The only problem is that so many people are ringing in is that they could, they, the phone lines were jammed so people weren't getting the message that they were supposed to be. So people were really taking this as if it was real. I was a student at the time. And I actually had, come, had gone home for the um, for, for this particular weekend. And when I got back to, I was staying in Hall of Residences, I was told that I'd missed it all because there were some people who were watching this in groups and some people were arguing about whether it was real or not. And some of them were actually freaking out, thinking that what they was watching was was real. They were really suckered in. And the BBC got into a hell of a lot of trouble these TV shows where people have the right to reply on, on television, but the, the writers and the... Uh, the, the director had to basically go and face the public on there. And the, the amount of people who were felt they'd been duped and were annoyed because they'd been taken in and people saying that their their kids were affected by this and that they um, they couldn't sleep afterwards, despite the fact that the uh, this show was actually passed for watershed and was supposed to be not seen by kids, uh, a lot apparently did. And it was really, really controversial. And the BBC actually... Attempt, they pretty much attempted to cover the whole 
thing up because after they'd done all the sort of the press and the PR and everything, they'd made it a needed that it wasn't ever to be shown again, that it wasn't ever to be released on video, it wasn't ever to good to be even mentioned in the radio times or anything like that. If they tried to distance themselves away from it, and and that yeah, really yeah. made it even more of a cult following because later on the internet but there's, came, there's another reason for that darren yes and there was also i was going to get somebody to that commit suicide yeah but a young lad oh, did, right okay did, yeah, yeah a young lad did commit suicide he it was 18 but he had learning difficulties and he apparently he saw the show and thought it was real and then when he would hear the um his um the air in his uh, central eating system he'd think it was actually the ghost from the show he'd think it was pipes and he actually killed himself and he actually left in a letter that because he because he now believed ghosts were real he think he'd think that he would basically come back as a ghost so that was like a you know a really you know one of the really you know sad tragic events that actually happened because of this but yeah that this show became notorious and and when the internet came around and people get into nostalgia People started talking about the show all over again, and it was finally released on DVD. In researching this show a, a little bit, I was amazed at how far and wide it had actually become because there's lots of show, YouTube shows in America that had talked about this uh, show because they heard about it and they watched it. So it's very weird you, you get in these um, American um, movie show hosts talking about people like Michael Parkinson and, and Sarah Green, who we all know as Brits, but in America, they, they basically don't know them. And, and they're sort of investigating. And, the, the, you know, the, the thing about this show is, even if you sort of see right through it, right from the start, it is really effectively done. Gets over the top towards the end suitably when Sarah Green gets basically trapped in with the demon in the, um, under, the under the stairs with the creature and stuff. But it's really well done. Even today, if you rewatch it, it's, it's well done. And, and back in the day when you didn't have the internet, and now, nowadays if you had tried something like this, people would be on the internet talking to each other. They'd be looking up the actors and everything. And, you know, they'd be even be looking up the street where this was supposed to be happening. So the, the, the fraud wouldn't last for more than, like, say, five minutes. But back then when people didn't have the internet as a way of communication, I can see why people would probably get sort of, like, suckered in, particularly at the start. But I think it's an absolutely fascinating piece of... Um, of television history. I personally think it's a great moment of television. Take that as what you will. Yeah, I've never seen it. I know of it and I know the notoriety behind it. Uh, I can't believe for a minute, even though it's a dramatization, Neil ever wanted to sit down and watch it. <laughs> no, 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 I didn't think so. My type of thing. Yeah. I can uh, remember the Ferrara because, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I think I had two kids under three years old, so I was trying to get any sleep I could. So I missed it. But I remember being in the office the following day or a couple of days later, and people were just going mental about this. Oh, it's all real. Ghosts are real and all of this. And that didn't they feel foolish when it all came out that it was a dramatization? <laughs> but there again, yeah. It really was the British version of the um, of the Orson Welles War of the Worlds hoax. Yes, and, exactly. and, you know, yeah, it, yeah, it, it is like that. And, and the thing is that the BBC um, they basically said that they they didn't mean it to be a hoax, but it was because uh, in the Radio Times the week before they'd actually done a, a feature on it that sort of expressed what it was that they were going to be doing. And when you, the actual yeah, the the introduction to the uh, the show when when you get the uh, the voiceover saying what the next show is, it's very it, it does sort of say that it's a dramatization, but it's very very vague. It doesn't quite 
say it. It just says the film you are about to see may be disturbing. But it doesn't actually out and out say that this is actually fiction. When the credits come up, it does say starring Mike. And, it's, and, and at the end, it says written by. But these are the sort of things that you only really, you would, if you were just watching this show, you probably wouldn't pick up on that. I mean, the fact it was in the, um, it had the, uh, the the screen drama logo come up at the start. But again, how many people would actually equate that with being a drama? The, 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 the steps, and also the Radio Times, you know, not everybody read the Radio Times. You, you know, so it's, you what? know, if you got the, well, if you got them, you really? maybe just. We used to get it free. Yeah, but but would but did you read the articles or did you just use it as a um a television nope. guide? That's the thing. Nope, so the, just the, 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 TV. the actual the yeah. elements that they the precautions that they say they took beforehand weren't you know they, they weren't they, they didn't come up and just say oh this is this one of my special um dramatization what you're seeing is is not I mean real no they they it was very vague. If you go on YouTube, there's clips from this. We've even got the, uh, the actual introduction that the voiceover guy said. And if you read it, it's very vague. Not everybody tunes in at the same time for a show. Part of the reason why the War of the Worlds thing was um, uh, brought in so many people as a hoax is because there was a really popular radio show at the same time that ran a few minutes late. And so when people were tuning into that show, They'd already missed the bit at the start that told them that what they were about to see was a dramatization directed by Orson Welles. So they just tuned in to what they heard is a um, radio news report live from a um, site yeah. of a crash landed UFO. So, like, you know, I, I can understand why some people initially got, you know, got all into it. And it's worth as well checking out the reaction, the studio um, debates afterwards. Um, there's one where there's some like real. You can tell real people are like really, really mad that they'd been um, caught out by this. Excellent. Well, I'm looking at a time here, Darren, and it's uh, as the song would say, it's close to midnight. And I would say the Halloween bash has definitely been a blast. There's mm-hmm. loads I want to catch up on. Yeah. So thank you very much, Darren, for all the invites. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm yeah. I, I'm knackered after that. Yeah, that's yes. a load of good stuff, and I've eaten yeah. far too much popcorn. Yeah. yeah, so you're not yeah, going to help sure me. So you're just going to go. You're not going to help me tidy up or anything. You're just going to leave all this here. Bye, bye. bye. No, See you later. Bye. No way. Anyway, while Darren cleans up and we leg it out here, like in those Scooby Doo cartoons. Um, so to everyone else out there, I hope your Halloween parties are as entertaining, though I doubt it because that was a fantastic mm, selection. Yeah. Have a spooky and safe time, and if you're not at a party, we'll see you at the flicks. Bye for now. Thanks, Darren. <laughs>